You're listening to the Rocky Mountain UFO Podcast with your host, Doc Pearson. This is the most critical period of Earth's history. I'm from Mars to help us survive. Pure energy. She is the first manned aircraft into space. The last five seconds before man shot an arrow into the air. It turns out we're invading aliens in the future. Worked so far, but we're not out yet. special guest on with me today, Mr. Alan Dean Foster, a national treasure. If you're a science fiction fan like myself, my guess is you have at least one or probably multiple books written by Alan Dean Foster in your bookshelf or on your iPad or Kindle. Alan's writing career spanned over five decades. His past clients include George Lucas, Gene Roddenberry, J.J. Abrams, and many others. He wrote the original Star Wars A New Hope novelization with the guidance from George Lucas and also published the very first expanded universe novel, Splinter of a Mind's Eye. He later returned to writing Star Wars, The Approaching Storm, and later the novelization Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. Today, we're going to talk about his amazing writing career, Star Wars, Star Trek, Aliens, Transformers, and possibly UFOs. I'm pleased to welcome Alan Dean Foster to the show today. First of all, Alan, thanks for being on the show. One of the great things that you do is adapt movies to books. Can you tell us how you approach your movie adaptations? If you're talking the way I do movie adaptations, it's really a lot of fun. I approach it from two different viewpoints. One is that of a professional writer, and the other is that of the 14-year-old kid who's sitting in the back of the theater with his friends, loudly criticizing the horrible special effects. If you put those, if you put those two things together, you get my adaptation of a film. And I get to do essentially my own director's cut. A lot of times the studio or various people associated with the production will make comments usually involving you need to take this out because we don't like it. We don't think it works. We think it'll contradict something in episode 23. If we get to that point, there's a lot more of that now today than there used to be. And there are fewer movie novelizations than there used to be. But I still enjoy doing them. And of course, the more freedom that the rights holders give me to do my job, uh, the more fun it is for me to do. So I've done some movie novelizations that I particularly like and some that I don't particularly like, but I always do the best job that I possibly can. I see you have poster for Forbidden Planet up there. Uh, if anybody wants to hear my opinions on Forbidden Planet, one of the three most important science fiction films made between 1910 and 1960, let's say, and buy a copy of the, uh, the, the, limited, the limited edition DVD, which has a lot of commentaries on it, one of which is mine. The Forbidden Planet and some of the other early science fiction, who are people that you followed or your early influences? You kind of grew up in the golden age of science fiction where people would go to the movie theater, catch movies like The Forbidden Planet and, you know, the pop culture that was with comic books and some of the kind of tabloid type magazines back in the day. I bet you really enjoyed that as a kid, didn't you? Well, actually, uh, while we left New York when I was five, we moved to Los Angeles. That's actually where I was raised. What's funny is that when I was growing up uh, in elementary school, junior high, high school, I didn't read a lot of science fiction. I read mostly classics until my senior year in high school when I finally discovered that there was a lot more science fiction out there because I had never been exposed to it previously than I ever dreamed of. 
And I began really by reading uh, anthologies of classic short stories. These, these were wonderful stories that had never been collected before because publishers didn't see any market for hardcover science fiction, much less hardcover collections of old short stories. But there were a couple of anthologizers, a gentleman named Gruff Conklin and a wonderful gal named Judith Meredith, who, uh, Judith Merrill, excuse me, uh, who went back to the old pulp magazines, the ones you're talking about from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and collected them into very thick, beautiful uh, collections. So you could go back, and if you went to a used bookstore, of which there were many in Los Angeles, uh, and found any of these, you could pick up, if it wasn't a rare book, uh, a collection of 40 or 50 classic short stories for a few bucks. And that's how I really was exposed to a lot of science fiction. I think it's kind of a shame that kids today don't see those kinds of books. Although if you go online and you look in used bookstores, you can still find a lot of them. The Forbidden Planet poster that you've got up there is funny because it's typical 50s promotion science fiction. There's no giant bugs. We have a giant robot, even though it's a very benign robot in the film, as anybody who's seen the film knows. But that wasn't the sort of thing that I guess they thought would sell tickets. It's very unusual in a way because the actress who's in the film is actually more, more attractive than the artist's model that's used here. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. And Francis, who went on to have a really uh, kind of groundbreaking in its way TV detective show uh, because it featured a female detective named Honey West. But I digress. <laughs> And I think, was it Leslie Nielsen in that too? Leslie Nielsen was in Forbidden Planet, the movie. He wasn't in, to my, to my knowledge, the TV series. But it was a straight Leslie Nielsen before he became known as a goofy comic actor. He's right. very good in the film. And there are a number of other character actors that people would recognize from the film. And of course, a great actor from the 30s and 40s, Walter Pigeon is the film a gravitas that it otherwise probably wouldn't have. The film was very expensive. Um, MGM decided to make a big-budget science fiction film in color. First film to have an all-electronic music score, by the way. Wow. Which occasioned uh, an interesting debate in Hollywood. They wouldn't allow it to be nominated for an Academy Award because the musicians felt that if this became a trend, they would all be replaced by uh, synthesizers. Just one of those all-time classics, and I didn't know you were on the DVD. That's amazing. I always thought one of the great things about science fiction is it becomes science fact in the future. I've seen that with your writing and other people's writings. And uh, this is a famous quote from George Orwell uh, from the book 1984, and people will not revolt because they will not, basically won't look up for their screens long enough to know what's happening. And that's exactly the kind of world we live in right now, which is crazy. Have you seen things or had things that stuck out to you with science fiction that I know you worked on Star Trek and others, Star Wars and others, some things that you've maybe written about or read about that have become fact that have kind of amazed you in the time you've been on this planet. Well, when you're writing about the future, you try to make your predictions as realistic as you can without expecting that you're actually predicting anything because you want the science and the surroundings in your story to seem realistic. Otherwise, you're writing fantasy and not science fiction. But nobody really sets out, I don't think, to predict specifically what's going to happen in the future. Uh, If you happen to hit something, you you get lucky. For example, I did uh, did a book called The Mocking Program and a series of stories 
called Montezuma's Strip, involving the same character set on the U.S.-Mexican border in the near future. And the main character is a detective named Angel Cardenas, and the police all have little devices with screens on them that can expand that allow them to access not only the sort of thing we would access normally off the web, but the entire North American police database. So they can find fingerprints and pictures and match them and everything right away. I just thought that seemed like a logical thing to happen in the near future. But there are much better examples in science fiction. The two that I always mention to people are a short story by my second favorite science fiction writer of all time, uh, who wrote under the name, Will F. Jenkins, who wrote under the name Murray Leinster, who had a story come out in astounding science fiction in March of 1945 or 46 called A Logic Named Joe, which not only predicts the home computer, but predicts the internet. Wow. And it's astounding how well it works. But that is background to the actual story. Excuse me, background to the actual story. I think that's available on Project Gutenberg and lots of other places for free if people want to read it. The other one I mentioned, which is uh, even more timely in its way, is a short story by Robert Sheckley who I consider the greatest short story writer the field has produced. It's called Watchbird. It's from 1953, if I remember correctly. And it predicts a future that uh, includes, talks about armed drones. Now, this is in the early 50s when nobody actually, they're called Watchbirds. Uh Nobody had any idea about what unmanned aircraft might become. And so people, those are two stories that people want to see science fiction stories that do uh, sort of predict the future quite accurately. Those are the two I recommend. The most famous one is a story that appeared in Astounding in 1944 by a writer named Cleve Cartmill, which is a name that most people probably won't be familiar with. If I recall correctly, the title is Deadline, and it talks about a war on another world and gives a pretty good description of how to build an atomic bomb. So much so that the FBI visited the offices of John W. Campbell and Astounding Magazine, wanting to know where Mr. Cartmill got his information. Because, of course, World War II was going on at the time, and everything was very hush-hush. And uh, John Campbell explained that, well, like any good science fiction writer, Mr. Cartmill does his research uh, in Science Magazine and National Geographic and lots of other places. And what they decided in the end to do was just ignore the whole thing, hoping that nobody in Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan had a subscription to or read Astounding Science Fiction. And that wasn't declassified until well after the war. That's amazing. I, I never heard that story. That's next thing I think that would be fun to talk about would be Star Wars. I know you've been involved with the franchise since the beginning. That's a great book cover they gave you for the Splinter of a Mind's Eye. And that story behind that's amazing how you were the first one to kind of get into the expanded universe and kind of help that whole franchise get going. Those of us who are around when it was released in theater, I remember seeing it four times at the theater because we didn't have streaming. We didn't have videos. There's no VCR. So the only place you could see a movie like Star Wars was on the big screen. And it was a great place. You know, it was a fun atmosphere to go watch a movie like that. So I bet you have some great stories to share about that. Well, we could do the rest of the show on Star Wars stories. Right. But I'll, I'll tell you one uh, that's uh, that's kind of fun. My wife and I were living in Big Bear Lake, California at the time, and we were invited to 
one of the first, if not the first, cast and crew screenings of the film. This is uh, a showing of the film that's set up for the people who worked on the film and other interested parties to see the film before it comes out, before it comes out in general release. And we went down to uh, the theater that Lucasfilm had rented. I think it was the Egyptian, but I'm not sure. It was on Hollywood Boulevard anyway. It was a nice day. We go into the theater and I see Gary Kurtz, who I hadn't had a chance to talk to very much. And I wanted to chat with him briefly. So Joanne went down uh, to get some seats, good seats. And Gary and I chatted. And I didn't know Gary hardly at all. So just to make a conversation, I said, you know, it'd be really cool would be if you showed Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century before the film starts. And yeah. Gary kind of mumbled something and we continued on. And then he had to go do business stuff. So I went back down and joined my wife. And as I sit down, she nudges me and leans over and whispers, look behind you. So I turn around and there's a guy sitting behind us by himself. And he's got long, scraggly black hair and basically looks like somebody who wandered in uh, after shooting up off Hollywood Boulevard. So I turned back to my wife and I said, yes, so. She says, don't you know who that is? I said, no. She says, that's Alice Cooper. So I, who have been raised on classical music and at that time knew nothing about rock, uh, looked at my wife and said, who's Alice Cooper? Right. And she said, she said, say something to him, say something to him. My wife is from a town of 300 people in West Texas, and she's not easily impressed anyway, but this impressed her. And I said, I don't know the guy. What am I going to talk about with him? Said, you want to say something to him? You talk to him. She said, I can't, I can't. You say something. So I'm thinking, well, what can I say to this guy who I don't know at all? And I turn around and I said, wouldn't it be great if they showed Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century before the film starts? And he looked at me and he said, oh, you like old Warner Brothers cartoons too. So we spent 10 minutes having a good time talking about Chuck Jones and Fritz Freeling and Bob Clampett. After the 10 minutes, the curtains part, there were curtains in this theater. And guess what comes up on the screen? Not Star Wars. Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. Oh, that's crazy. So, so Gary sandbagged me pretty good. Obviously, they were doing this so that all these people who had worked on the film and were very nervous about what the final result was, not having seen it before. Uh, the idea was to put them in a good mood and relax them. After we left the theater and everybody's wandering out to their cars in the California sunshine, my wife jabs me in the ribs and I go, well, what'd you do that for? And she says, you spent 10 minutes talking to Alice Cooper and all you could talk about was a bunch of old cartoons. <laughs> that's awesome. I, was, I told you, I told you to say something to him if you want to talk to him. Oh, that's so awesome. that's my favorite. That's my favorite Star Wars story. And as far as I've been able to tell over the decades, that is the only Star Wars Alice Cooper Star Wars story. I've never heard a Star Wars Alice Cooper story. That's awesome. Some of the later Star Wars projects, I know you're involved with that. You worked a little bit with J.J. Abrams on the new, you know, the last three movies. Anything interesting about that? Or was it a pretty, pretty good experience overall? This approaching storm book was huge when my son was, you know, junior high or earlier. Well, let's go back a little ways back in the mists of time. I was approached for many years by people at Del Rey to do other books after Splinter of the Mind's Eye that were set in the Star Wars universe. 
And they tended to run along the lines of, you know, what Chewbacca's uncle was up to. And I just, I just, I had nothing against them. I just didn't want to do them. I didn't feel that I could do a good job anyway. And if I feel that way about a project, I won't do it. I think that cheats the reader if you do that. The reader can tell when the writer is invested in a project and when they're not. And they finally asked me, said, look, we have two books coming up that are going to be set between episodes one and episode two. And they will actually, in their way, continue the story, the main line of the Star Wars story. They won't be off in another star system somewhere involving a lot of subsidiary characters. And uh, Anakin Anakin will be in it, Obi-Wan will be in it. And there's a female Jedi and her Padawan. And that really got me interested because nobody, to the best of my knowledge, I'm not a completist, had done anything with female Jedi up to that point. And that intrigued me. And the fact that it was also going to be canon, obviously, at least to a certain point, really interested me. And they said, here's what you have to work with. Uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin have just come back. And they're supposed to go to this planet called Anison, which everybody is trying to get uh, uh, the Rebel Alliance is trying to get them aligned. And the Empire is trying to get them aligned with them. And that's it. Go and write a book. And, oh, here are two renderings of this character, Ludmila Nduli and Baris Ophi. And those are, have to be principal characters in the book. And that's all the information I was given. And I went off and wrote the book. So that's how The Approaching Storm came about. The novelization of Star Wars The Force Awakens happened because uh, a lot of people at Del Rey thought it would be kind of cool now that the series was being resumed to have the person who had written the first novelization write this one. I was asked and I said, I read the script. I thought it was a good script. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And I obviously ended up doing it, but it was very different experience from writing the novelization, the first film. When I wrote the book version of the first Star Wars film, uh, I was given a copy of the script about a dozen of uh, Ralph McQuarrie's pre-production paintings, copies, obviously. And that was it. It was go write the book. Because everybody else involved with the film was busy trying to get the film finished. So I went off, as writers do, to my little writer's cubby and wrote the book, turned it in. And George said it was fine. And that was the end of it. When I went to write the novelization The Force Awakens, and previously to The Approaching Storm, but even more so with The Force Awakens, there was now something called the Star Wars Story Group, which was to supervise everything, uh, literary certainly, associated with Star Wars. In other words, the writer's manuscript had to pass through a committee. Now, I understand the reason for this, but as a writer of books, where unless you're collaborating directly with one other person, you write by yourself, you work by yourself. If you wanna write by committee, you go and write movies in Hollywood, unless you raise your own money and, and go to Slovakia or something and shoot the film there. So I wrote the book based on the screenplay they gave me, the material they gave me, turned it in and 
had to make some changes. Most of which I didn't agree with. I thought they would have helped the book. Small things, nothing major. The one big thing that I was certainly would take out was I thought the main weapon from a scientific standpoint, bearing in mind that Star Wars is not science fiction, it's science fantasy. But even so, I just can't escape science when I'm writing something that even peripherally looks like science fiction. And they had this super weapon in there, which basically is stupid. There's really no other way to to describe it. And I thought, well, I'm going to fix this if I can. And I know they'll take it out, but I'm going to do it anyway, because then I can look fans in the face and say, this is what I actually did. I wanted to come up with something that I could at least present to Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he wouldn't shake his head and go tut-tut at me. So I did a fair amount of research on how you might actually, using existing scientific knowledge, blow up a planet. And that's what I put in the book. And I had a lot of fun stuff with a lot of, a lot of terms and things that I didn't really quite understand. But I consoled myself with the knowledge that there were probably a dozen people on the planet who actually did completely understand it. And it's all still in there. They didn't cut. That was the one thing they didn't cut out. So I'm very, that's the most, that's the thing I'm most proud of in the novelization of Force Awakens. If you want to know how to blow up a planet using existing physics, you can read the book. And there are two whole pages in there that basically do nothing but describe this weapon and how it works. So like the guy, the guy with the atom bomb, are you going to expect a, a call from the government asking how, you know, how to blow up a planet. <laughs> no, it's, it's not a, it doesn't seem to be a concern of the current administration. Right. Exactly. That might be down the future in the future. Sometime might be down the road a bit, you know, somebody will say, well, you know, we, we're in this interstellar war with these nasty aliens and we have to blow up this planet, which I don't think anybody would actually ever do by the way, uh, something else silly about that. Right. Because even though we think there are a lot of habitable worlds in the galaxy, there's still, probably few and far between. And it seems to me that the destruction of very usable real estate is not the best way to handle a difficult situation. Right. And the cleanup would, would be a pain too. I'm sure the other planets would make you clean up that big mess, which I'm sure that would not go over well. My favorite science fiction writer, Eric Frank Russell, who was a British writer, did a short novel called The Ultimate Invader, which I then had the privilege of expanding into a full novel called Design for Great Day, which was the original title from the first magazine appearance. He was dealing with an interstellar war. And the way that uh, his main species, us and some others, uh, cleared out the really bad, bad guys was they did something to the bad guys' homeworld that stopped all of their females from reproducing. So nobody was killed. They didn't kill anybody. Uh, It's just the species went quietly extinct. I read that they're doing something like that with, um, gosh, mice or a rat infestation in Florida, where they're trying to get rid of all these rats or mice, and they're doing the same, a similar thing where they're just making it. So after a few generations, there's no more of this kind of rat that they're having problems with, which is, that's, that's a crazy concept when you think it through. And not a new one. They're doing it in the Florida Keys with mosquitoes. 
Oh yeah. I heard that too. Yeah. You're it's right. So, they start, so you might be, we might lose like entire populations of, of animals because somebody thinks they're annoying. Right. Which, you know, it goes back to science fiction too. And they did that with a whole species on a planet. You could see where that would be kind of scary if they started to use that here. Well, we've already done it with the Guinea worm in West Africa, which is not a really, really nice thing. I mean, I love animals. I'm not crazy about mosquitoes and I don't particularly like parasites of any kind, but this is, if anybody wants to read up on it, it was a really, really nasty parasite that uh, lived in human hosts and caused a lot of deaths and a lot of pain and suffering in West Africa. And we've gotten rid of it. So it's, it's something that we have actually done. Thanks for joining us for part one of our interview with the legendary Alan Dean Foster. Join us for part two on the next episode of the Rocky Mountain UFO podcast. 